Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. Good afternoon, it's Fresh Thinking. It's wonderful to be with you on the show. It's been a couple of weeks for a variety of reasons. Thank God, here we are back together again. I hope that, uh, that you're in a good space. And that you're well and staying safe. These are important things. So please God you are. Please God your family is all well. That's, I suppose, what we should be focused on more than anything else. So exactly a week ago today, I was in such a good space looking forward to Lagba Oimer. And it's because it's a very powerful day and it's a very meaningful day. And it's a time of joy and miracles and all good things. In fact, I actually sent out a message to our community last Thursday morning to say, tonight is Lagba Omer. It's a time for miracles. And everybody should take advantage of that opportunity. And then, uh, you know, on a personal note, I had family members who were on their way, who were going to be at the major festivities at Miron. I don't know if you've ever been there. Miron in the north of Israel, not too far from the holy city of Tzfat. And that's the burial place of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, whose Yortzite is on Lag Boimer. And that's where all the celebrations are centered, because before Rabbi Shimon passed away, he made a request that his Yortzite each year should be a day of celebration. So this time last week was, for me personally, was such an upbeat time. Big things were going to happen, you know, it was going to be this joyous experience and this time of, of blessing and this time of miracles and so on and so forth. And sadly, tragic, the like Bohemian festivities were turned on their head. And what should have been such an incredible day on the calendar, it has been marred. Uh, maybe not just for this year, maybe for many years to come. There will be this bitter taste in our mouths, this tragic memory of this particular like Bohemian, the horrible, horrible, tragic events of what happened on Mount Miron last Thursday night, actually early Friday morning. And I think we're all trying to make sense of what went on over there. And I don't propose for one moment to say that we can make sense of it. Tragedy is one of those things that you really never get to make sense of. As the expression goes, if you were God, maybe you would be able to understand. In fact, I heard an interesting thought today that when Moshe, when Moses says to God, show me your glory, show me, in other words, like, that the Talmud says what he was asking is, explain to me why it is that good people suffer and why it is that bad people prosper. And God says to him, there is a space with me. Implying, if you if you come where I am and if you see things as I see them, that's when you'll have answers to these questions. But we don't. We are trapped in the human experience with our very limited perspective. So we've got to try and unjumble and make some sense of what happened. And I believe that the only thing we can do is reflect on what we could do better, what lessons we may have learned from the from people's responses, and what things we could do better. No person should ever justify, God forbid, the suffering of another person. No matter what amazing source you may have found in what amazing book to say that such a thing was predicted, I don't see the value in any of that, but it definitely has to be paused for reflection. If something shakes our world as it has, it's something we've we got to talk about it and we've got to just try and unpack it. So that's what I'd like to attempt over here today with your help 
just to try and work out, so what do we take? What do we take out of such a horrific experience? What does it tell us about ourselves? What does it tell us about our people? And what should it encourage us to do going forward? That's where... Uh, and that's where I'd like to focus today, and I really would love your perspective on this. So there are a number of ways that you can interact with us on the show. You can use the SMS line, which is 34519. You can use our Telegram line, which is 0618951019. You can comment on the Hi FM Facebook page. You could use Twitter, in which case you could either direct it to at Hi FM or to me personally, at Rabbi Shish. Just curious what your initial thoughts are or have been about what we can take from this experience, how we could use it um, as a catalyst for growth and for connection or whatever it is that you may feel. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Talking, I suppose, trying to dissect, trying to understand. Uh, you can't understand. Okay, let's be clear about that. And I did say it in the beginning. So, what was your experience? What went through your mind when you heard of the uh, uh, of the events of last week's Lag Ba'oimer? What what went through your mind? What were you experiencing? What were you thinking? I know some people were quite angry, uh, understandably. You know, you see that a whole lot of people get together, and I, I'm not going to politicize this because, of course, the people are going to say, "Well, you know, they should have done things differently, whatever." It's quite difficult to say this. This is an event that has happened for decades. And I, I wasn't there, so I cannot comment on exactly what the layout was and what the contingencies were. But it has happened for decades, and they've managed it all the time. So let's not sit here pointing fingers. In fact, that's probably one of the first lessons, is that in a time of difficulty, a time of loss, a time of pain, one of the last things that we should do is point fingers. Needless to say, if somebody is in a position where it's their responsibility to investigate, where it's their responsibility to hold authorities accountable, then yes, by all means, they need to do their job and point fingers where they need to be pointed. For the rest of us, on the other hand, I, I don't see the value in that. So what exactly went through your mind? As I say, some people were angry, not so much angry with the organizers, but angry with the principal. You know, it's not like anybody was doing anything harmful. It's not like people were doing anything criminal. The motivation to be at Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is a very positive and powerful motivation. It's it's that you want to connect and you want to be together with your fellow Jews because it is a day of Jewish unity. And you want to connect to God because it's a holy day. And you want to experience the aura of the great sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai himself. So it's not like anybody was doing anything which was so objectionable, um, and yet such a horrible thing happens, and on such a powerful day. I think it's like people feel it's a slap in the face. You know, I was thinking, the Talmud uses this expression, that if it's the first night of the holiday of Sukkot, and you're supposed to eat in your Sukkah, and you look forward to it, and you plan in advance, and of course you've got to build the Sukkah in advance, and then you've got to cater the meal, and you probably have guests as well. And then you come to sit in your sukkah on the first night, which is mandated by the Torah that on the first night you have to sit in your sukkah. And then it pours with rain. So the Talmud says that that is a slap in the face. That is the parable that the Talmud uses is if you had a servant who brought a drink to offer to his master. And instead of accepting the drink, the master takes the drink and throws it in the servant's face. So that's the description that the Talmudic sages give for the experience of what it's like to be in your sukkah on the first night of sukkahs in the rain. And I'm thinking, 
if that is considered a slap in the face, if that is considered some degree of, I don't want to say rejection, rejection is not the right word, but some degree of censure, and what on earth, what on earth must it feel like to go on a holy day like Lagba Oimer and confront the reality of 45 people losing their lives tragically? It, it feels so harsh. It feels such a, an upending of what's supposed to be a powerful, positive and good day. And I don't think anybody's going to have the answer to that. Like I said, the people who's sending out all these things I found in this book and that reference, whatever, it's all very nice. But I dare any, well, actually don't. I don't think you should ever consider sharing that with a grieving family as if to rationalize their loss. So, you know, let's definitely not go there. But th this feeling, there's a, a tremendous feeling of loss, I think, that people had. And there's a tremendous feeling of concern. And I think this is one of the main reasons, uh, one of the main areas where we should uh, focus, where we should concentrate is there's an element of concern about what happened or more specifically what happened afterwards. And I'll just tell you from my personal experience, and this has colored a lot of my personal view on this event. So it was early Friday morning and um, I received a message from a family member to say, I'm sure you heard what has happened at Miron, but don't worry, I'm fine. It's a family member who was there at the time. And obviously, the first thought I had was, no, <laughs> I don't know what happened at Miron. And so I immediately went and Googled. And the first article that popped up was an article, very terse. At that point, there wasn't a whole lot of information. There certainly was major confusion about exactly what had happened and what had gone wrong. And so, you know, trying to get as much information as possible, I read this article, and immediately following the article were a series of comments. And the, the comments were horrific, to be frank. Not all of them. Some of the comments were an outpouring of grief from, from uh, fellow Jews around the world. Um, other comments were absolutely horrific. So there were gloating comments from Arab commentators who were so, like, in your face, and, and saying, you know, this is great news and, and really not just dismissive, but vicious about it. Literally celebrating the deaths of other people. Something, I don't know if you could ever get your head around. You know, the Talmud teaches us, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice. And that's your enemy. That's not just somebody who belongs to another group that happens to be different or another nationality that happens to be different to yours. So that's how we're schooled as Jewish people. So we're not allowed to celebrate the deaths even of our enemies. So that was very jarring, you know, to see people gloating and celebrating and so excited. I found out subsequently that there was an article on one of the other news outlets that attracted 30,000 anti-Semitic comments. Now just pause for a moment, whatever it is that you're doing, and just think for a moment what that means. That a tragedy hits a group, a population, and the response, the response is tens of thousands of anti-Semitic comments. Many of them celebratory. It's, it's absolutely bizarre, but I'm afraid to say not surprising. The world of anti-Semitism has always celebrated the harm of the Jewish people. It's just part and parcel of our history. In fact, that is the dead giveaway that somebody belongs to that camp no matter how loudly they shout that they're not anti-Semitic. But what was more jarring 
and, and harsher were comments by members of the same society, members of Israeli society, who made comments about the fact that, well, this is those primitive Haredim and so on and so forth. I don't, I don't even want to repeat the comments that were made. But it suddenly drove home how there is this incredible, I mean, it's not like I'm naive. I knew there was a divide in, in Israeli society, particularly between the really religious and the really secular. But when it degrades to a point that people are able to vocalize in the heat of tragedy, well, you know, the, the area hadn't yet been cleared of, of the wounded or, or of the, the victims. And you can still in that moment find it in yourself to be critical, to malign a group of people is absolutely mind-boggling. And that was, that was certainly one of the first things that struck me about this experience. And I think that's what we should be talking about, about connection, about concern, about a sense of unity, about discord. Because after all, nothing is by accident. Lag Boimer is the holiday of unity. That's what it's meant to be. And then you see this. So I'm curious if you came across similar sentiment and how you felt about it. If you did, please share it with us on 34519 by SMS or 0618951019 via Telegram or on Facebook at the Chai FM page or on Twitter at Chai FM or at Rabbi Shish. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So that's what was uh, top of mind for me personally. At the, as the news was uh, trickling at that point, trickling out of Israel about the tragedy in Miron, so there were people who found that necessary. They found it, they found it necessary at that time to sharpen the, the blade and, and you know attack each other. It, it was just absolutely mind-boggling. And the reason it became even more interesting to me is because of the timing. Like I said, like Boimer is a day of Jewish unity. That was the goal. And the more you think about uh, Jewish unity and the more you think about the day, the more incongruent it is that that should have been a day of division. Now, I know what you're going to say, and you'd be right. And I'm going to say it too. It wasn't across the board. There were incredibly heartwarming uh, visuals that came out of Israel at exactly the same time. So you probably, I'm sure you must have seen the the lines of people in Tel Aviv who only wanted to donate blood. Now, conceptually, conceptually, the Haredi world and Tel Aviv are probably as polar opposite as you can get. That, that's where you expect the chasm to be. That's where you expect the discord between the Black hats and payers on the one hand, and you know people frolicking on the beach on the other hand. And yet you see those those visuals, and you see people wearing the long black coats and the black hat, lining up to donate blood right next to people who are dressed in shorts and you know tank tops and whatever. It, it's it's fascinating, and and that's the real story. That's the real story, so we shouldn't get distracted by the couple of bad eggs, assuming, of course, that it is a couple of bad eggs. It's certainly a minority. We hope it's a, a significant minority. But that's really where the focus should be. Look, it's the people coming together and the sense of brotherhood and the sense of, of community and the sense of responsibility for each other. As the Talmud says, Kol Yisrael Arevim Ze Lozeh. 
and the the expression goes further, which basically means that every single one of us as a Jewish person takes responsibility, has responsibility, carries responsibility for every other Jewish person, at the, as you would for your own family. I mean, we have a responsibility to the entire world, but to our own community, we have responsibility as if they were our family. And then it goes a step further, and the Talmud implies that actually it's not just that we are responsible for each other, but we're enmeshed. That's the reality. What happens to us in one part of the world is felt by the rest of us wherever in the world we might be. So when you see those pictures of people together, shoulder to shoulder, uh, inundating the, the blood services, so eventually they had to turn people away, you say, ah, that's it. That's exactly what it is. Uh, there was a fantastic article that came out recently. Somebody sent it to me yesterday. Absolutely beautiful article about these two fellows, very secular Israelis, and they were inspired to go visit one of the families that was sitting Shiva, or is, uh, well, they would have finished Shiva now, um, that, that was uh, sitting Shiva for a, a family member who, had, who they'd lost. I don't know which family it was. And a fellow describes, he writes this article, he says, you know, he was concerned because here he comes with his T-shirt and his uh, bare head, you know, he didn't even necessarily have a yarmulke, a kippah on his head. And he went to visit this particular family. And they're this very Haredi kind of family. And he walks in. And, uh, I mean, it's, I've got it in front of me. It's quite something else. So this is who he went to visit the family who lost two of their children, which is un unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. So he says, I come in my jeans and I come into my, in my T-shirt with my friend. And he says, I walk through the door into the sea of black coats. And the second I walked in, two people got up and offered me to sit, me and my friend, to sit not just on the side, but to sit right in front of the grieving family. Since I was taken aback, I couldn't believe it, that, you know, here it is, that they invited us in. And then he says, this fellow, he says, uh, you know, they had been speaking Yiddish, because that's the first language in the, in the Hasidic world, so they had been speaking Yiddish. As soon as I walked in, he says, they changed to Hebrew. So that they, you know, said so shouldn't feel like I was I was being excluded. And then he said, "This I'm, I'm reading it to you, uh, just translating as I go along." And then this fellow says, he says, "The the mourner, the father, the bereaved father who had lost two of his sons, one fourteen and one nine years old." So the the the, the, the man says to him, he says, "How would we have met otherwise?" So I'm so happy you're here. How would we have met otherwise? Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Here you have people who live in the same country, and it's not the distance that divides them. It's the enclosures that we live in, the enclosures of our own minds, you know, thinking that we're separate from each other. How would we have met otherwise? And then the fellow, the father, goes on to tell him, he says, I want you to be clear about one thing. He says, this is a situation where we're all holding and supporting each other. He says, right now there's no such thing as... A secular Jew, there's no such thing as a religious Jew, there's only a Jew. The fellow walks out of there, I mean, it was a, more of the more conversation, it's a longer article. The fellow walks out of there and he says, I, this meeting, this interaction that I had with this bereaved father, this expresses the truth of our nation. This expresses the undying love that exists between us. This expresses the way that we share each other's pain. And this expresses the immense faith that we all share. It's such a 
beautiful moment, such a beautiful encounter that would never have happened. And it's so tragic that this is how it should happen. But, but look how beautifully these two individuals translated it. So you see two themes emerge. You see that there's a theme on the one hand of people who are so absorbed in their own malice that even in the most tragic of times, they can't get past themselves and they have to speak along partisan lines and they have to point fingers and say, well, those people, they don't know how to behave and they, they're so primitive or they have to gloat at the downfall and hurt of others. That's one channel that you see. And then you see another channel, which is people who just break the barriers and say, wake up call, realize what's happening over here. This is, it's, it's all a false narrative. It's so-called fake news. It's, it's nonsense. The fictitious labels that we use to divide people, it's all nonsense. Because at the end of the day, like you, you probably would have seen, there was another family where the, the, they lost a child. I think he was 13 years old. And the second child who was there, who must be about 11 years old, he was saved by a Druze policeman who, who was in the vicinity. And you see these, you see these people embracing with this Druze fellow a few days later. And the father says, he says, do you realize what happened over there? The guy didn't ask me first, didn't ask me which camp do you belong to, which shul do you daven in, are you Jewish, are you Druze, are you Arab? It's irrelevant. And, and I think that's such a powerful concept. We get to choose which channel we live in. Some people, sadly, their whole lives, they choose to live in the channel of division. So what can I find about the other person that is objectionable? How can I catch the other person out? How can I criticize the other person? How can I see the negative in the next person? You know, it's like that uh, professor did an experiment with his psychology students and he said they were sitting in a massive hall and there was one loose roof tile. It's ironic because I'm sitting in a room that has a loose roof tile. Uh, they had this one loose roof tile. And he says, look up at the ceiling. What do you see? And everybody says, loose tile. And he says, that's the problem with society. There's a whole ceiling that is all beautifully aligned and everybody notices the one ceiling tile that is out of place. One channel of how people choose to live their lives is to see the faults, to see the division, to see the discord. And that's never a healthy or a happy place to live, not for them and not for anybody around them. And then you have another channel which says, okay, you know what? Much more unites us than what's the, what divides us. Let's focus on that. That was the first thought that... Um, it came to me after this experience of last week's terrible Lagbo Imer tragedy. I'd love to hear your thoughts and insights. I know it's a heavy topic and people may be not comfortable to share, but go ahead. Just a thought. 34519 on SMS. 0618951019 via Telegram. Otherwise, use social media channels, either Facebook or Twitter. So if you have just tuned in, just popped into your car or wherever it is that you listen to Chai, it's Fresh Thinking. You are with Rabbi Shishla. We are together until three this afternoon. And today's focus is last week's horrific tragedy in Meiron, the graveside of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, what should have been a beautiful Lagboimer celebration, truncated and disturbed by the most horrible scenes. And I'm just thinking of the lessons that have come out of it. First lesson being the lesson of connection or the responsibility that we have to connect with each other. Somebody sent me a clip. So this uh, this same fellow I just mentioned who lost two children. I mean, just 
think for a second what that has to be like. Nobody should know. Nobody should ever have to experience such a, a horror. And this father is interviewed. And all he says is that we need to come together in unity. Independently of that, from a different community, another father who lost his child interviewed and he says if my son was sitting here right now he would say that the only thing that we need is unity and that's an interesting thing because we're presently counting the omer in the second last week of the process of counting the omer each week is supposed to focus on a particular area of personal development and this week we focus on what is called yesoid direct translation of yesoid means foundation but the characteristic of your side is the characteristic of bonding, of connection, and of relationship. So it's quite apt. We've just come out of this horrific story that really has shaken us all to the core. And this week we're supposed to think about relationships. So here's a place to think about our connection, about our unity, about our ability to see past fictitious labels. And the truth is, I actually discuss this with people on Shabbos. The truth is... That it's probably one of the great challenges of living in our modern world is exactly that. These fictitious labels that we persistently or society persistently insists on applying to people. And the moment you look at individuals and don't see individuals, you just see labels, then you'll always have discord. You will always have conflict. So there are certain traditional battle lines, right? There are political battle lines. You look in the United States where there are just two parties. So the effect is that the entire country gets divided into two camps, into two teams. Uh, a friend of mine, quite a few, he's a smart guy, and quite a few months ago said to me, he's an expat South African living now in, in the States, and he said to me, American politics is exactly like color war. Now, if you ever went to a camp in the United States or a Gun Israel camp here in South Africa where they model many of the programs after the United States, you'll know what color war is. Basically, what happens is you have two teams. One team is red. One team is blue. Each team has a leadership structure, so there's the general of each team, and then there are his lieutenants. And for a period of one or two days, depending on the length of the camp, the entire camp is in a competitive mode between these two uh, teams. So they compete in sport, they compete in song, they compete in producing a play. It, it's a whole thing and it's all like, you know, rah, rah, my team's better than yours. And then, of course, after it's over, one team wins. That team gets whatever prize it is that they get, usually a trip out of the camp. And then life goes back to normal and everybody gets along again. So this fellow said, American politics is like color war. It's a red team and a blue team. You pick your team and that's it. Either you're on my team or you're against my team. <laughs> and it becomes so divisive. Why? Because we label people as if it would be realistic to suggest that all Republicans are homogenous or all Democrats think the same. You're talking a population of what? 450 million people and they're all going to be boiled down into two groups? We do this all the time. We do it by classifying people according to the nation they belong to. Oh, you're from that country. We're from this country. Don't you know we're sworn enemies? Don't you know we have a, a litany of 
issues. We have a long history of conflict. So you're from that country and I'm from this country and we can never talk. We can never have anything to do with each other. Or we divide people based on the label associated with the color of their skin. So your skin is that color and your skin is that color and you're this. Or we do it based on a person's religious orientation. So meaning even within the same religion. That person is labeled as Haredi. That person is labeled as Hasidic. That person is labeled as Reform. That person is labeled as Secular. As if all people who daven in the same shul are all clones. The truth is we even do it in today's world. Labeling individuals based on their sexual orientation. As if every single person who is oriented the same way is the same kind of person. It's quite ridiculous. It, it's quite fake. It's quite damaging. Because when you can conveniently lump a whole group of people into one category, then you could choose an attitude towards that category. And if there's something wrong with that category, you can write them off. You know who the first person in history was to do that? His name was Pharaoh. Pharaoh got up in front of the Egyptian nation and said, there is a group of people. They all belong to the same group. They're all the same. They're all going to destroy us from the inside. They're leeches. They're just here to live off the fat of this country. They are unproductive. They don't give us anything. They're going to one day side with our enemies and oust us from power or from our own land. It was the very first rudimentary lesson in propaganda. Demonize a group of people. And then you feel excused to treat them in any which way that you choose. And you always feel justified with your perspective. Because you've, you've lumped somebody in a category. So, can you imagine if we did this with first names? Can you imagine if everybody in the world who had the name Michael would be put into a group called Michaels? Michaels are like this. Michaels need to be treated in a particular way. They're nothing like Andrews. Andrews are completely different kind of people. Andrews should all be respected. Andrews are our friends. Every single one of them. Can you imagine doing that? It would have been such a ridiculous way to divide people. So what should we be doing? You know, one of the most encouraging images that came out of last week's tragedy were the Arab villages close by to Miron where you had Islamic Arabs in the middle of Ramadan where they themselves couldn't eat or drink during the course of the day, putting out food and drink for those trying to make their way home from Iran because it was so difficult to clear everybody out. Now, you could easily say, oh, Arabs, Jews, sworn enemies. Put people into boxes, put a line down the middle, create a boundary. That is never a Jewish perspective. Yes, Judaism is clear. If somebody states that they want to harm you, don't excuse them. Believe them. But don't write off everybody who looks like them. That's not a Jewish attitude. Love to hear your thoughts. 34519. That's our SMS line. Very quiet today. Uh, Telegram is 0618951019. And social media is always available, be it Facebook or Twitter. Choose your poison. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So here we are trying to uh, unpack a little bit about what happened in Israel last week. And to me, one of the most profound lessons, messages that, uh, that, that comes out of it is how do we look at other people? It's far too simplistic, convenient, 
and destructive, to look at other people and say, you know what, you're different. So therefore you get lumped in that particular category of people who are different to me. It's, re- it's really interesting that this concept, remember this week we're in the middle of counting the Oimer and this particular week we're focused on the personality trait called Yosoid, which is the basis for all relationship. It's very interesting that think about how relationships work, real, meaningful relationships. They're completely personal. So if you're distant, you know, you know, somebody said this, it was really, really interesting. Somebody said this a while ago that one of the worst things that ever happened to social interaction was the invention of the of the motor car of the of, of a car, because previously what would happen and on our streets here in Johannesburg it still happens that's the truth in South Africa it still happens. Uh, previously what happened is people would walk down the street and wherever you were going you would obviously encounter other people you'd interact with them hello good morning whatever it is. Uh, by the way, if you've never done it you really should. Walk the streets of this country. Do it. Walk the streets. The most amazing thing. Because everybody is friendly. Okay, 90% of people are friendly, right? You cannot ever generalize about anything. And even that was a generalization. But people are friendly. You say hello, they hello back. Put people into cars and they change. Like their whole personality changes. First of all, it is impossible to actually hello, how are you? Because you're moving, you're going, you're, you're in your bubble. But it, there's like a fascinating transformation when you put a person behind a steering wheel where suddenly they see cars, they don't see people. So a car cut me off on the road. <laughs> it's not a car, it's a person, a human like you. You also make mistakes on the road sometimes. You also, you know, aren't on top of your game. Some days you also take a, a chance. No car cut you off on the road. A person cut you off. This car was trying to get in. No, it was another human being who was trying to get in. And you know what? You could be nice to them and let them in. So it was quite a profound thought, you know, that there's this, uh, the way society is, has evolved, it's created these bubbles and these barriers between us. And then, of course, with the advent of social media, it becomes the easiest thing in the world because there's no accountability. You know, when you say something aloud, you might say, Ooh, did I just say that? You know, you kind of taste it on your tongue before, before you let it go. It's like when, when a person has even a positive thing in their life, very often you see this with new couples that have just recently got engaged. They've got to get used to using the word fiance. They've got to get used to the phrase, we're getting married, you know, because it's, did I say that? Did I say that out loud? You know, once you hear it, it gives you context that it's like a sounding board. It allows you to have a perspective. Social media, what's the big deal? I send a message. I don't stop for one second. I've often thought about this. Send out a message before you send it. Somebody once said, before you post something on social media, imagine that it was going onto a billboard on the highway and then think if you would still say it. And if you were, if you'd say it in the same way. I often think before posting something on social media, I think, one second, let me just think, who are the followers? Who, who do I, who's, who's going to read this? And I try and think of like the most diverse group of people because I know that my followers, personally, people that I interact with, on social media, and of course on social media, you know, you don't know who might get to see it that you don't even know. But my personal interactions include people that are the full spectrum, and I'm sure yours are too. The full spectrum. From a frumist of the frum, to secular Zionists, to people who are anti-Israel, to people who are non-Jewish, atheists. So I've always got to think, you know, who's going to, who's going to hear this? But in the social media world, it's so easy just to like write people off, make glib comments. 
and especially because our society has of late really gotten into the habit of labeling people. Everybody has a label. A person expresses a particular nuance of their behavior or their personality, straight away a label. See, you know, without getting into the whole debate, but you could have a child who's already labeled, oh, this is a transgender child. I don't know that. How many kids as kids know where they're going? We don't know. Maybe yes, maybe not. We don't know. So you stop putting people into these labels. Whereas if you interact with people as individuals, when you respect a person for who that person is, which is inclusive of their thoughts, their feelings, their well, who, what, what philosophies they subscribe to, what their orientation is. It's all part of this pic, the picture. But the picture is unique. The Talmud says it perfectly. The Talmud says, no two people have the same face to remind us that no two people have the same internal makeup. You've got to know that. So when you, you know the old joke, the old joke, what's the difference between a Jew and an anti-Semite? An anti-Semite says all Jews are bad. They control the media. They want to suck money out of the entire world. They are all just the same. So you say to the anti-Semite, hang on a second, but your, your doctor is Dr. Shapiro. So, uh, no, no, he's an exception. So what's the difference between a Jew and an anti-Semite? A Jew says every Jew is amazing. Every Jew is amazing. So how come you have a faribal? You don't talk to Dr. Shapiro? No, Shapiro is different. Meaning to say, when you, when you whitewash, when you see people in clumps, in groups, it's the easiest thing in the world to have distance, criticism, write people off, attack them even in the most insensitive time. So the challenge is to see people as people. Challenge is to cross that bridge between yourself and an environment that's not that's not aligned. And it's fascinating that the most incredible connections that exist between people are not always between people that come from the same background or are homogenous. There's a particular fellow who um, I met once, I'm in touch with him online, and he looks the part. If you would see him on a Shabbos. You would naturally box him in the Haredi box because he is. Long payers, full beard, black coat, furry strimal, the whole works. In the meantime, it would surprise you completely that this is somebody who has deep personal friendships and has visited multiple times to these people in Saudi Arabia, in, in uh, the, the Emirates. It, because at the end of the day, the challenge is to see the individual for who the individual is. Every segment of society has people who are good people and people who are not such good people. And I have a responsibility as a Jewish person to look out for my fellow Jew and to see the best in my fellow Jew even when he misbehaves or she misbehaves. But I equally have a responsibility to look at every single person and to determine and distinguish on a personal basis, is this one of those people who posted one of those 30,000 anti-Semitic remarks, in which case, what, nothing to do with them? Or is this somebody from the same background who set up a stand in the middle of Ramadan to offer food and drink when he or she couldn't eat or drink themselves, in which case I have to have a totally different perspective. And if we'd look at people more as people than as groups, we'd probably have a much healthier, 
much more happy, much more holistic world that we would live in. So it's really something that we should consider working towards. Um, maybe you've got some practical suggestions on how we could do it. Maybe you're doing it already. If that's the case, let us know at Rabbi Shish at Chai FM on Twitter, otherwise on the Facebook page, Chai FM Facebook page, or the good old-fashioned telephone, 345-19 for SMSs, or 61895-1019 for Telegram messages. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. The Jewish attitude towards loss is not to get stuck in the loss. Needless to say, the grieving families must be allowed to grieve. And by extension, that includes all of us because we all are bereaved. That's the Jewish way. But at the same time, we don't get stuck. So if you look historically, whenever something tragic has happened in the Jewish world, we always look for an opportunity to turn it into a catalyst for more goodness, for more growth. For something positive that could happen in the world. So, for example, after the Holocaust, it was very common for people to leave an empty seat at their Pesach Seder table to commemorate somebody who had lost their lives in the Holocaust. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who himself had had lost people, um, so he said, doesn't that kind of play into the the whole concept and the objective of what the Nazis wanted to achieve, which is to undermine Judaism. So he suggested that a healthier way to respond would be Dafka to fill that seat with a person who ordinarily would never have been at a Pesach Seder. And there's a whole psychology to that. Here we are, very much feeling helpless, I think. What could you do? Can't bring people back. Can't turn the clock back. You know... Very often in the rabbinate, I think rabbis feel we wish we had a magic wand because we deal with people in their raw emotion and in their real pain and grief. We wish that we could just come and like fix it all, snap our fingers and everything would go back. We can't. What we can do is we can use a terrible incident as a catalyst for something better to come to come of it. And when you look and you see, number one, first and foremost, when you see the incredible outpouring of unity that did happen and is happening in Israel between factions, between groups within the Jewish community that traditionally don't necessarily get along. When you see that, you say, mm, there is something. There is something that, that we could do. We could do more of. Think about it. Think about it right now. Think about someone or some group within the Jewish world that you have a hard time with. That you think, you know what, just don't relate to them, don't understand them, don't, you know. Think about how we could cross that bridge, how you could cross that bridge, how I could cross that bridge, how we could connect, how we could see the human rather than see the collective that they happen to represent. And then it shouldn't just be the way that we look at our fellow Jew. It should be the way we look at every single person. Look for the good in people. We need more kindness in our world. We need more reaching out and recognizing the value of every person. We need it because the world will be a better place for it. And I'm pretty convinced that coming off a day of Jewish unity that turned into a day of tragedy, the best response is a response of unity. We say in our prayers every single day, Our Father in heaven, bless us all as one with the countenance of your, the light of your countenance. And then the emphasis over there is bless us 
as one. When we look to be unified, we open channels of blessings. Please, God, we should open those channels. Please, God, we should deepen our sense of unity. Please, God, we should see the good in every person. And as a result of that, have the greatest brochas and the ultimate brocha, which we already need, which is the coming of Moshiach now. I want to wish you a good Shabbos. Stay safe and stay sane.